This is a new public service podcast brought to you in full by Hachi the Hack. Hachi the Hack probably gives a f- what you think. If you don't like it, then you can find another means of entertainment. Little did you know upon giving this a chance, you have just found the best thing about lockdown. Hachi the Hack is fed up with the media and government sh- and may well let rip. Anything else? I guess followed and enjoy the podcast. Hello again, troops and troopettes, and welcome back to episode nine, part two of my Corona podcast with me, Hodgie the Hack. Remember, this is the pod that is all about keeping you sane, informed, and entertained during lockdown. During the week, the subject of contact tracing apps came up in Parliament once again, and after Keir Starmer took Boris Johnson and the government to task in the issue at Prime Minister's questions, we are going to take our shot at contextualising exactly where the UK is right now in terms of the pandemic and this issue. In part one, which of course you're free to go back and check out as well, we looked at what could have been with the NHSX app. That was the government's own attempt to to design a contact tracing app, which was abandoned last week. And in part two here, we're going to analyse exactly where that decision leaves us. Returning to the starting lineup this week, we have Amanda Brock, CEO of Open UK. Amanda's background is in law and open source programming. How are you since we last spoke, Amanda? How are things down there in London? Good, Stuart. Um, From my perspective, I'm continuing to follow Nicola Sturgeon's advice. I have been for the last few weeks, so I'm mostly staying at home. Mm, Well, I think a lot of people have been praising her for, for her advice, which seems slightly less fudged than the, the kind of government advice down there, which there seems to be a lot of ambiguity flying around. Uh, and after Liverpool's title win and the return to beaches, as soon as you mention the pubs are opening, people are just like, yeah, that's it, lockdown's over. Um, whereas I think we know that's very much not the case. The one change that we're making up front this week to our lineup sees Paul Bernal. Uh, if you have listened to episode one already, you'll realise I pronounced his name incorrectly, but I have since clarified that. Paul is Associate Professor of Law at the University of East Anglia, and he comes into the team today. Paul, you're a man who always keeps a keen eye on things from a a legal and political perspective. You've also got a background as an entrepreneur in in the IT field as well. Uh, It should be fascinating to, to hear from you over the next hour. Thanks for joining the podcast, mate. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and uh, I hope I have something that's that's at least interesting to some people. Well, I'm sure you will. Just um, people heard a bit sort of uh, about what kind of Amanda does in in part one. In terms of yourself, down at the UEA in beautiful old Norwich, what was the day-to-day like for you and how closely have you been following the story of the app? Well, my specialist subject is privacy. And so I've been following this pretty closely from a privacy perspective, but also as I think I can call myself a geek rather than a nerd, (laughs) I'm fascinated by the tech, what the possibilities of the tech are, and how we can kind of get the benefit of it without all at the same time giving ourselves a a bit of a nightmare. Can you clarify for me what the difference is between a geek and a nerd? Okay, so this is not an official definition. Yeah, I realise that's not Samuel Johnson dictionary. Exactly. Um, A geek is somebody who's really interested in stuff, a nerd is someone who actually knows about the stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. That's an I, interesting one. Uh, the people I know who are software developers all call themselves nerds. They don't call themselves geeks. Geek seems to be very mainstream. 
And what about you? Yes. So, so what about you, Amanda? Are you a geek or are you a nerd? I'm probably a geek. I probably don't know enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's me. I, I, I would definitely say I fall into the category of geek as well. Um, for So when I was growing up, a geek was more someone that sort of applied themselves to learning a wee bit. Um, maybe they were into some of, you know, those bands like Weezer and, and Wheatus who had the sort of specs and the glasses and that kind of stuff. That seemed to be how it was, uh, it was verified one way or the other, how you got your stamp. Then again, if you've listened to episode five of this podcast, you'll realize that um, you were either classified as a yicket or a ned in North Ayrshire. Now there, <laughs> we, we, we chatted just off air about colloquialisms and slang. There is some fascinating slang. So after this, after we've given everyone some sense about how everything is about the app, you guys can go back and listen to episode five with my mate Tosh and me, and we'll tell you what just what it was like growing up in North Ayrshire in the noughties. Now... I think things could get quite spicy here because you both have a legal background. Um, and I did sort of joke uh, that I, I might be expected to say the word objection, but Paul quickly corrected me saying that there is no objection in British courts. Um, why is that, by the way? Has that just always been the case? Oh, well, you can, you, can ha- you can object to something, but you don't do it in this kind of melodramatic um, courtroom <laughs> drama style. Objection. Um, <laughs> We, the courts in, um, certainly in England, I, I haven't uh, seen them in Scotland in so much detail, um, are not really quite as dramatic as they seem to be on, on American legal shows. It's much mm. more, uh, well, how can I put it, nerdy. It's quite nerdy, hey. court life, really. Well, <laughs> Do you know what? I've gone to the public gallery before and it wasn't quite, as you say, as melodramatic and exciting as I was expecting. Um, I did it as part of my media law module back at uni. Uh, it was, by the way, I should say off my own back. I just decided to go. It wasn't part of, of what I had to do to get my NCTJ qualification. But I just thought, yeah, why not? Anyway. And what, actually, what, one of the things that I do is I take our um, broadcast journalism students. I teach a module which is law for journalists. I take them to court and, yeah, they're not as um, excited by it as they might be. <laughs> well, I, I think, the sub, I'll tell you what, there is two exams that I've really worked for hard in my life and that was my NCTJ Law and my standard grade mathematics because I'm not a numbers guy. So, um, anyway, talking of numbers, here's a starter for 10 at a cost of £11 million. At least that's the figure being bandied around. This NHS X app, the decision to abandon it, ditched by the government, just how big a failure was this app venture? And do you feel the decision to bail on it was a political one, or do you think it made sense from a software point of view? I'll ask that to you first, Amanda, and then we'll come back to you, Paul. Yeah, that's an interesting one. The, the simple answer is nobody knows, so we don't know why the app isn't being used. I don't believe anybody's seen anything to actually confirm. I, I believe it's a political decision not to go ahead with it. Uh, who knows? I mean, obviously it was controversial with the centralised database, could be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Boris, as you already quoted, said that nobody's got a working app two days ago. Well, obviously they do, and that's not correct. Um, in tech, we work in a way at the moment where people talk about agile they talk about lean different kinds of methodologies and ways of working and one of the phrases that you hear often is fail fast so what Mm. they've actually done is put something out to test they failed fast but it isn't actually abandoned Stuart so I want to 
It's not going to be rolled out, but the code is available. Because it's open source, the code is on something called GitHub. It's shared, and my understanding is that that code is still going to be used for the front end of our app. It's just the back end will now be based on the, the Google Apple if it goes ahead. Okay, so front end and back end. Can you mm. very quickly delineate <laughs> what those are for, for listeners who are, are not geeks or nerds? Right, I can. And anybody who actually knows what they're talking about, I apologize to. This is me being a geek. Um, the front end is the bit that we see. It's the bit they sometimes call a client because it sits on the client's devices. So you and me as consumers, we see it, we interact with it. Uh, you'll also hear things like uh, user interface. The back end is the bit that the cogs work, but it does all the calculation, does all the work. You know, when you, you, people say they're being a swan and their feet are paddling under the water, is the feet paddling under the water making it work, the bit you don't see. Mm, right, okay, cheers for, for, for clarifying that. Um, Paul, on the decision to, I mean, I, I realise Amanda's rebuked me there for the, the very tabloid-esque terminology that I was using in terms of abandoning it, but I think the government have definitely, it, it does seem that they've really taken a step back from this. And I noticed a tweet from you, which I think you might go into here. I mentioned the cost of £11 million. Actually... Um, you were pointing out that the cost could be sort of put in such a way that the, there's a lot more money actually gone into that yeah, and then the I, government have stepped back from this. So okay, what, what can you tell us about that? And so how big a failure do you feel it has been? Um, well, <laughs> how big a failure? It's been a failure in lots of different ways, but I don't think in some ways it's as big a failure in relation to money. I mean, because Amanda's quite right. A, a lot of the work that's gone in will continue to be valuable. The code that's written will be valuable. The lessons that are learned will be valuable. Mm -hmm. And um, so in, in mon monetary terms, it may not be quite such a big deal. But can I, can I or take another thing that Amanda said and, and, and make the, the, re the really important point here? Nobody actually knows what's going on. And yeah. that includes nobody knows what this money's been spent on. We've heard this figure. We haven't got a breakdown. We don't know how much of this has gone into software development, how much of this is, is kind of legal, contractual work, who's being paid what. We don't know anything in, term, in those terms. And until we do, if we ever do, it'll be very difficult to, to, to decide yeah. whether it's actually a failure in, in financial terms. And... That's part of the problem that I've had with the, the, not just the app, but the whole approach of the government from the start. We haven't been told what's going on. We haven't been given the details of what. And, and let, me, let me just give you a, a, a specific example in relation to the app. Mm -hmm. It was piloted in the Isle of Wight. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the terms of that pilot were. We don't know what they were actually aiming to do, how they would measure success. We don't know anything about it. Now, in, in, uh, Amanda will give you much more detail in relation to software development, but a normal bit of project management, you do set out, what are the terms? What are we trying to do? What is a good result going to look like? What is a bad result going to look like? What decisions are we hoping to make on the basis of this? And I'm presuming that they do have this information, that they did actually set out terms for this pilot, but they didn't make it public, so we don't know. And that's mm. been the problem all the way through. Yeah, I agree with you, Paul. And I think that's where I'm trying to get to. We don't actually know, as with so many things in the last few months, really what's happened. I think the mistake 
mistake they've made is that the more information you share, the more you can tell people a story and the more they understand what's going on, the, the more relatable it is, right? I mean, I do work in software, but I also work across hardware and data. A lot of what I'm doing is about collaboration. And we, we've worked and I've worked personally over the years with many, many big companies, bringing them together to collaborate. We often call it coopetition. And that's a whole different way of thinking. And I don't think the government has made that shift to that kind of thinking. I actually think some of the folk in NHSX have, and I'm sure they would have shared, and I know we could go in with the Freedom of Information Act request and we could get a lot of data from them, but there's sort of different elements to it. So there's knowing why they failed, and then there's also the, the way that the press is portraying things and understanding the process. So mm. for example, I happen to know that in Italy, they were advised to test, but they wanted to get the app out there, so they got the app out there. I also know that they're, they're having problems in Singapore, um, which again is because they haven't tested it enough up front because everybody's trying to get this out so quickly. I think the issue of the government not necessarily being wholly transparent about this process is an interesting one. I think you can see that throughout the pandemic as a whole, communication has been really, really ropey. There is a question for me whether that is actually deliberate, a deliberate act of obfuscation, or whether it's just a case of ineptitude, um, or is the ineptitude willful, as I have perhaps suggested if you follow my social media channels on more than one occasion. However, I want to come back to this issue of why the, the, the thing was abandoned. So the government went into this knowing that not using the APIs, my turn to be a geek, an acronym for Application Programming Interface. Um, so is that, that, that's back-end stuff. Or is that front-end stuff, just to clarify, Amanda? It's the in-betweener, in a way. Ooh, <laughs> it's exactly. interesting. <laughs> well, me, me and all my friends were the in-betweeners growing up, so uh, that, that, that makes sense. Anyway, the, these APIs created by Apple and Google always carried significant risk uh, in the sense that... So the system created by the big, term, big tech firms, that lets Bluetooth run seamlessly in the background. Countries like England, who wanted to forge their own path, or the UK, had to work around restrictions in Android and the iOS operating system as a result. And it seems that really belatedly, that's something that in the development of the app, the, the guys at NHSX or, or, or whoever realized that it's just simply not possible to do that. It just wasn't working on so many iPhones. So does that not suggest that the decision to, to even try this from the get-go was a mistake in some ways, even though the front end stuff exists. Why go with the, the mindset of making this sort of all purpose app if it's not going to work? I'll let either of you chime in there. <laughs> so I'm happy to. So, uh, frankly, when you make anything, you don't know if it's going to work. And for every big tech success story that you and your audience have heard of, there will be hundreds of people who failed. You know, I've worked in a bunch of companies and made no money. Whereas friends' happenstance might have ended up in another one that just happens to be the one that makes the money. Um, mm. I don't know the exact figure, but you're looking at thousands of failed tech companies for everyone that survives and does well. And what you see, and one of the reasons that the sort of cross-company collaboration, the cooperation that I talked about, one of the reasons that happens is we've gone through this whole digitization, not just of... Um, 
the tech sector, but I would say of all businesses in the last few years, and the pandemic has pushed the last of them who hadn't done it into it. Everybody needs them. Everybody needs tech and everybody needs the same things. And what that's meant is we've all been driving towards the same solutions using different technologies. So you see Android on phones, Android being really successful. Hundreds, if not thousands of people started off the process of creating similar things. Mm. A few would have got to the stage of having a lot of funding and being ready to be the Android equivalent with Google or whoever it was going to be. And Android's a successful one. Mm, that, that, that's interesting. I, I can remember when we were speaking um, earlier, Paul, about other countries and, and kind of doing the comparative thing. And I think it's worth touching on that in the podcast. You yourself, you mentioned Australia and France and the data there and yep. um, how much use that is despite a high take-up. I think you feel that those countries are good examples of where despite there being a high take-up, the, the data doesn't seem to be of much use. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, there are, there are lots of different things going on at the same time. And I actually had some sympathy momentarily for Boris Johnson, which is a very rare thing for me to, to have, <laughs> um, when he said no other country has a, a, has a, a working app. I, I mean, he's completely wrong in one sense, but he's, there is an element of truth in that we don't yet have an app which is doing the job that they have presented their app as being able to do. Now, what, what I mean by that is making a, a significant contribution to um, solving the problems we have with the virus. That doesn't mean that they're not working, that they're not, they're not actually able to, to trace contacts, they're not able to do that. Because as far as we can see, and Amanda will correct me on this, I'm sure, um, a lot of them are working. From, from that perspective. It's just that the data they gather isn't necessarily as useful as they, they thought it would be. Mm. And uh, I, this goes back to the same question I had at the beginning. You've got to say, you've got to define what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it and how you're going to measure your success. What would success look like for mm -hmm. um, a contact tracing app? How would we define it? That's because where... Matt Hancock, in my opinion, got it fundamentally wrong, was presenting it as the main part of the whole um, test, trace, track, isolate, whichever combination of those four words you want to put into a, to a, to a three system is. He made it sound as if the app was mm -hmm. the whole thing and everything else was just an add-on. And that was never going to be the case. And he should never have said that it was going to be the case. It's... Mm. Whether it can make a contribution is another question. And whether the data that it gathers is useful um, is part of that question. What, how does it all fit together? What is the process? What is, what is it all, what does the whole thing look like and what part does it play? And so far, the evidence from Australia, the evidence from France, and I'm just reading today about the evidence from Denmark, which has got a, a, quite a big turn up, turn, uh, take up, um, but it's relatively recent, um, the data has not yet made a significant contribution. So we had, a, had a, I think it was 14 examples in France. We have 80 examples from, from Denmark. Are these numbers big? Not in absolute terms. Do they suggest there's something that could actually be useful in the future? Maybe. Mm. So what are the other options there then if not going this particular route? 
And just on the subject of Matt Hancock, actually, you would think when it comes to the failure of an app, he would know a bit about that. For anyone that doesn't know, Matt Hancock was the first MP to release his own sort of personal app, and that bombed. So to then present the the sort of contact tracing app as like the entirety of how tech can help in the fight against this pandemic just seems, to be honest, pretty idiotic. And in part one of the podcast, we we asked the question, and, and you had some strong opinions on this, I remember, Amanda, which I'm happy for you to reiterate now, about just how this is one very much one piece of an entire jigsaw of how we're yeah. going to fight this pandemic, isn't it? It very much is. It's an interesting one because uh, I've been quite firm from the start about it being one component. Nobody knew if it would work. You're relying on people and it's a, a personal decision. And I think I said to you in the last one, which I have to admit I've not listened to. I don't like hearing myself. Um, <laughs> you and me both. Right. So I, I, I think I said to you, I personally don't know if I would download it. And you're sitting with that balance between... I don't like the idea of them being tracked and I've actually got a lot of stuff switched off on my phone, not because I'm doing anything particularly exciting, but it's my business, you know, mm. and I want to keep it my business. I don't want to give them absolutely everything about me versus the sort of moral obligation to help everybody. Um, just picking up though on what you were, you're saying there, I think India's got something like 900 folk who've been told to self-isolate and they've not had the same moral dilemma because the app has been made compulsory for some people. And I think they've got something like 130 million people who've downloaded it. I don't know what the utility is actually like, and I don't know how good the data is. But for me, the, the big story this week is Germany. And um, I have to say thank you to my friend Stefan, because he translated a whole load of stuff for me overnight on the, the German app. Yeah, well, do you, uh, want to, do you want to give us some, some key points on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it's called um, Corona Warn App, and it came out on the 16th of June. And if anybody's interested in it, if you go on to GitHub, it's all in English, and you can see all the information about the app. And actually, I think GitHub have a thing on there where you can see all the different European apps. Um, with the German one, between the 16th and the 25th of June, they've had 13 million downloads. Mm -hmm. But that's not the really interesting bit. The really interesting bit is that they may have succeeded where NHSX has failed. One of the things that kept being pushed back was how is this going to work when I go on holiday? How is this going to work? You know, we talked last time about North to South Ireland or Northern Ireland to Ireland. Um, they are actually rolling their app out in other countries. And I think it's like the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France, Austria, Czech, Poland, Denmark, Romania, Bulgaria. Wow. have all committed to have this already. And it's a matter of days before you'll see it on there. Now, you can't use it if you don't have a German Google or Apple account. But that's going to change over time, I think. So I think that's the one to watch, actually. Just yeah, for on, sure. Yeah, just from an economic perspective, uh, obviously, this is a government thing. Um, and there might be no sort of user kind of imperative. But what, what kind of impact could that potentially have for Germany in an economic? And that, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but I'm just interested. Uh, could, could that have implications economically, positively um, for Germany and then for, for, for the UK? Obviously, we are heading for Brexit, that kind of thing. That is pushing ahead. So... What, what kind of impact could it have that it's, it's sort of an EU member state that is doing that from the UK's perspective and from Germany's perspective? Could it have a really positive economic benefit that they are potentially the winners of this race? Or, with the way software development works, 
could it be that um, they, they've just they, they've done the, the first sort of inroads and almost a bit like a relay race at the Olympics. Um, the batting could now be passed to another country to take it on further in a different direction, or is this very much their kind of venture? Uh, can, so, I, can I, cut, yeah, can yeah. I cut, cut, it, cut in at this point? Um, I, I think one of the interesting questions is whether we view this as a comp- competitive situation or a collaborative one. And Amanda's talked about this quite a lot. Yeah. But I think what the Germans have done is view their success as being dependent on getting other countries to be successful as well. You know, they were, mm-hmm. they, mm. because of Germans, Germany's um, geographical situation, they're surrounded by other countries. They want to be working with those other countries. They want to get trade going with those other countries. They want their own citizens to be able to, to, to travel to other countries. They, they like the idea. They need the idea of cooperation, and, and they see that as part of, part of the, the point. And I think exactly where it goes from here is, is a little bit un, unclear, but it's clear to, to the Germans that they want the whole place of Europe to be able to find a way out of this situation. They're not, and, and this is again a, a political thing with the UK, that uh, it's a bit sickening to hear every time there's some, some kind of a success story, it's Britain's success, and every time um, there isn't, it's kind of a natural thing that has nothing specific to do with, to do with Britain. I haven't seen that from the from the Germans, and and they've been much clearer about just wanting to do what they can to solve the problem rather than to make it a great um, German success story. Um, uh, mm. But the other thing about Germany, we have to remember, Germany changed track as well. Germany started off going for a um, centralized system, and they shifted track earlier than we did, um, and to the the. Um, decentralized um, Google Apple system. And I suspect that that decision was driven in part by this, I, this realization about the need to cooperate, the need for, for things to be working with, with other countries. I may be wrong. I mean, this is, this is all yeah. a, bit, a bit of speculation, but I, I, I hope you're right. Be part of it. I think, mm. I think that's exactly the point. And I was desperate to raise what you've just raised at the end there, which is that Germany changed track. And when I first started following all of these apps, I was speaking to people in all the different countries and um, looking at what they were all doing. And Germany was viewed as, like the UK is now, as having failed because Germany had gone out there. They were one of the first who was driving it forward. They were using the same centralized database as the UK has been using. And they were building on that. And they had a lot of pushback from privacy people Um, you know, uh, civil rights campaigners, and they were pushed so hard that they admitted failure. And what I think is interesting is we're now praising and lauding them and saying that they're doing the right thing, but they've come back from failure, which is sort of the nature of tech. And I'm hoping Mm. that we'll see the UK government do the same thing. So what about the option of the UK government potentially moving to migrating towards this German app and and sort of feeding off the, the work that they've done? Do you think they're going to do that? Or do you think the UK will continue to at least believe it can blaze its own trail? Well, hopefully they'll collaborate. And one of the great things, uh, I keep banging on about this open source stuff, and it's because it's really important for people to understand what it means. And it's all about sharing the content of the code that makes the software, the source code. And the Germans have done that. And they've put it on GitHub, which means that everybody who's got a GitHub account, which is something you can get for free, can go in and access it. And you can take it and you can use it. And they're encouraging collaboration. So I think actually there's real potential there and people can play around with it. 
countries can play around with it. Uh, what, I, what I'm hoping for is that the UK does go that direction. Um, but I suspect that the UK won't want to say it's going that direction. So there may be a, a bit of a kind of um, uh, playing with words to say that this is our thing and so on and so on and not actually mentioning um, Germany so much. But I, because I, the, the, the tech people all understand about the cooperation. It's the politicians mm -hmm. that don't really want to, to present it in those terms. And can I just mention one other thing about Germany and one of the reasons that, I, that, that they shifted earlier it, Germany mm. has um, both strong constitutional protection for privacy and strong historical reasons for protecting privacy. Yes. So the, 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 they were much more likely to respond to the, um, the pressure from um, civil society and indeed from the tech sector in, in, mm -hmm. in Germany. Uh, whereas, st uh, and I say this as a privacy advocate and someone who works with a number of privacy NGOs, it's still viewed as a as a kind of tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy um, theory by uh, large numbers of larger elements of government and indeed some elements of the, the the tech industry in the UK. So the pressure from from a privacy perspective is was always less likely to be successful in the UK as it as it was in in Germany. Excellent. I think that's, no, I was going to say it's very, very interesting. And one of the things that I'm seeing from Germany and Stuart, maybe this is for your podcast in a year's time, they they're working very hard and leading in Europe on something called digital sovereignty, bringing the, the rules and the scoping of people's data rights back to their own countries, and looking at cloud computing and the big tech companies and how that the the impact of the US having a lot of the cloud companies in, is affecting all of us. They're also looking at projects like one called Gaia X, where they're actually building the cloud from scratch within Europe. So I think Germany is going to be one to watch in terms of governmental interaction with the tech sector. Yeah, I think just bringing it back to the UK um, sort of thing and, and appreciating obviously this need for cooperation. And I think, I mean, even this pandemic situation, the, the sheer humanity of it means that the, the kind of international boundaries are, are somewhat diminished. There is a need to cooperate. And I think everyone appreciates that despite Britain's political position with Brexit. But just on the subject of privacy, there was an interesting set of tweets from an academic, Michael Veal, who I understand you, you actually know, don't you, Paul? You know, Michael. I do, yes. And what can yes. you tell us about him as a guy? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's one of the good guys, I would say, right from the start. I, I, if, I, if I can do a, a little kind of plug, um, we're both mm -hmm. involved in a... Um, a kind of conference called Geeky, um, where we where we talk about the uh, border between law, tech, and popular culture. So I, mm. for example, wrote an article and did a presentation about online privacy through the eyes of Disney princesses. So um, <laughs> that's brilliant. Not very PC. Oh. No, well, I, I talk about that hmm. in the article. Okay. There's a whole whole section about that in in in, in the article about kind of the, the 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 role of the. I mean, there's a what some wonderful feminist critiques of of Disney princesses that I that I even cite. Um, but we also we he's one of those people who sees sees things from lots of different directions at once, and hmm. he he has he was involved very directly in the work towards a um, decentralized system 
that has been kind of used throughout Europe. That's the other thing to say about him. He's part of the European scene generally too. You know, with the, the academics do talk to other academics in Europe. He's very much part of that. Good, good to know. Um, just before I go into his set of tweets, and I'm going to get you to quickly go through them, the, the, the two of you will we'll talk about each topic, keep your answers sort of to, to 10, 20 seconds, and we can rattle through it quickly, whether whether he's right, whether he's wrong, whatever. Um, but just before I do that, do either of you have a favourite Disney princess? <laughs> I, I can tell you, I can tell you mine. My personal favourite at the moment is Moana. I don't know if she's uh, actually a princess, technically, but um, techni- technically not. Um, there's there are there are some good jokes about that. I'm I'm still a Merida fan from Brave, but um, that that's well, he's just being, not, yeah, you're just stop. sucking up to us now. Yeah, you're just clean <laughs> to the crowd, Paul. Of course. <laughs> Brilliant. Amanda, any anything to throw in there just before we get back to the I don't know how many I could stuff? actually, yeah, I don't know how many I could name. What I could tell you is my six-year-old nephew, Reese, would be mortified if everybody knew that he loves Disney princesses. Oh, well, you've now, you've now said that publicly. <laughs> I, I may have to edit this out for Reese's benefit. Um, excellent. Right, so let's rattle through these um, points that, that Michael Veal made on his on his Twitter. So what he was saying is that the data protection impact assessment for the NHSX Isle of Wight app trial indicated significant legal flaws. Um, and he pointed out in four sort of main categories, personal data, user rights, monitoring and automated decision making, and with regards to prior consultation and e-privacy. So I'm just gonna gonna say his points one by one, and you guys can say yes, I agree that he's right. There's a legal problem there. Maybe explain a bit about it and what it is. I know this is very much sort of your area, Paul. But if so, I'll address you primarily. But uh, Amanda, if you want to chip in with anything, then please do so. So first one was. He said the data protection impact assessment must not claim that this data is anonymous, as was claimed in some quarters, um, or that the app preserves anonymity, as under UK law it does not. Was he right about that? And yes, why? He's, straightforward, he's straightforwardly right about that, because anonymity does not mean that it's currently anonymous, but it, that it cannot be linked indirectly to an individual and this stuff can easily be could be re-identified to individuals mm. okay the document and associated public messaging must be changed throughout to reflect the fact that it's not the case that personal data about a user is only uploaded with the user's permission because other people upload data revealing a user's social interactions so what, what was he getting at there okay so the the, the way that that it was originally set out if you were uh, if you were notified that you you might have come into contact with somebody, then you're supposed to send out your contacts. Now mm. those contacts include the people that you've contacted with. That is personal data of those people, not just of you. So those people, it happens to without them having any idea that it's happened. Interesting. Um, in terms of user rights, he makes three points. So the lawful basis for a blanket refusal of the right to erasure is unspecified by NHSX and this DPIA. So what, what's, what does he mean there? Well, if you're going to override um, somebody's uh, rights, there has to be a lawful reason for it. And they, these are set out in, in the, the GDPR and um, effectively incorporated in UK law, even after Brexit under the Data Protection Act um, 2018. And you have to say what the basis is. The basis might be 
the vital interests of the individual concerned. It might be that there is some other kind of consent that has been gained through people using the app, for example. When you use the app, are you consenting to it, even if you're not notified, and, and so on. But mm. what you have to do is explain what the legal basis is. You have to state what the legal basis is. And they don't do that in the impact assessment. Okay. Um, the NHSX app unlawfully designs out the right to access when there is a legal obligation to design it in. What does that exactly mean? I'm, I'm a bit unclear on that. So under, uh, under data protection law, and this has been always been the case, not just with the GDPR, um, you have a right to access personal data. So you can send a, a subject access request to people to say, send us the, the send me what you've got on me. And um, that doesn't just mean that, that you can do it. It means that whoever's dealing with it has to design a system to allow you to do it and to do it reasonably quickly and efficiently. So they have to design the system so that it can make the personal data available to people should they request it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Amanda, just, just on that point, do you think the guys at NHSX were, were probably aware of this and that it was maybe just the stage that the app was at, or do you think that they might not have even considered that? I mean, do you have any indication on that? Yeah, just thinking about everything that Paul's just said, there's nothing I disagree with there, but obviously he's the expert on data protection, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. when you're explaining data protection to people, I mean, most people will have heard GDPR. It's um, data protection law that you would have all seen last year because everybody suddenly started getting emails saying, is it okay to keep you on my mailing list, look at my privacy policy, accept all over again. And that was a, a piece of European law that was implemented here last year. So the UK companies had to comply with it by last May. And um, a lot of data protection is about consent, and that's at the centre of what we in our day-to-day -day experiences see around data. But actually, consent's only one of the things that allows yeah. people to use your data, and that's often misunderstood. And I think that's what Paul is explaining to us, is that there's this bigger picture of other reasons where your data can be used. We like to think that we have to consent to everything, but actually we don't. And understanding mm. what that is is very important. And I think the last thing there was privacy by design. Um, one of the things that GDPR requires is companies, when they're building their databases, they start, or when they're building anything that interacts with, uses your data, processes it, they start by thinking about how that system is going to use the data. So this privacy by design phrase has become a sort of catchword in business. And I would imagine, I'd be really surprised because they've got a lot of people advising them, that the NHSX crew, you know, I don't have any inside track in this, but they would of course have been aware of it. And I happen to know among the people I know there, some of them are privacy advocates. So, you know, they're fully aware of it and they would have been thinking about it. Mm. I think part of the problem we've got is we haven't seen things like the terms and conditions, the data agreements you click through. Yeah. Now, maybe Paul, you have, I haven't. No, I haven't. And I don't know if anybody has. And I, I mean, I, 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 I would say, I think one of the potential issues here um, I don't know whether this is the case with NHSX, but it's the case in lots of places, is that the people who write things like the data protection impact assessment aren't actually the people working on the project themselves. You, you might get kind of your legal team or even your PR team to write it and mm. not actually to consult as closely with the people working it. So even if the people in NHSX are aware of all of this, they may not have communicated that to the 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 people who put out the data protection impact assessment and 
I, I think this is one of the issues we have generally. And again, I think Amanda's probably the, 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 the person to talk to about this, that somehow we have to find a better way to get communication straight from the people who are doing the real work um, to the public, rather than it being filtered out by combinations of legal teams, PR teams, and politicians oh, who that's a difficult things are embarrassing. One. Right. So one of the things that's really interesting around all of this is that with open what happens is we share things and we talk about it and we get attributed to what we've said and it's all publicly there. But the downside of that is people get trolled and harassed and bullied. And we've all seen problems with that with school sure. kids and the like. And we have to also be a bit cautious about people and how they're treated in the workplace. If Would you like your day-to-day -day work to be under this kind of scrutiny? Because it must be really tough on them. I, I think that's a good point, yeah. And I think um, the messaging actually comes not from the individuals. I think what we're lacking is enough transparency in what's been shared with us. And that doesn't matter who shares it. I think there should have been more information and a more understandable way, if that, Paul, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, that make, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I, I, I wasn't actually meaning that each individual should be held accountable, but somehow the team needs yeah. to be able to communicate um, what's going on in a better way without it being kind of subject to the filters and biases and so on of the particularly of the politicians and and I, I think I, I, just the, the big example for me is this Isle of Wight pilot that right up until the moment they abandoned the app um, the politicians were saying it's all going really really well and everything's everything's fine and so on mm. and when evidently it wasn't and and somehow we needed to know more about that and we need to know more now and and i'm presuming that, that there were various people in the in the, the the team who were kind of acutely aware of the the problems but also aware of the the way the communications were was going and, it, and it's very hard if these are your bosses who are saying things about you i mean the people who are paying you who are saying things about you that aren't true how do you deal with that how can you you, you make, maintain your integrity, keep your project going when you're in that situation. It's really hard. It is. And the intense scrutiny that there was on this, I think, from the press and, and from the public at large, made it, and, and we alluded to this in part one of episode nine, as I'm sure you remember, Amanda, it, it, it makes it such a unique situation for a software developer to be in this public arena as this is, is going because I, I think it was very interesting the the discrepancy i mean we keep talking about the the miscommunication the double speak um the the transparency of this whole process and i found mm -hmm. it really really interesting to to sort of analyze how i mean after you explained to me the way it sort of works with software development and i did have some sort of cognizance of it myself but what once you really sort of broke that down for me i thought well that's that's really interesting because um obviously the speed of the development was one of the points you picked out in part one amanda how quickly they managed to get the app to the testing stage mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but the narrative from the media around it is that everything was beset by delays so yeah, I, I just how can how can that be the narrative when the developers worked flat out to get something to market? Who's to blame here? Is it the government themselves, the press? I mean, wh wh where does the, the the blame fall for you guys? 
But Stuart, you know this, right, better than I do. Years ago, I used to travel for work to the States every three or four weeks. And when I got on the plane, I used to pick up every free newspaper I could get. And I would end up with six or seven. Mm-hmm. And I used to amuse myself by reading the same story in each paper. Ah. And you wouldn't know it was based on the same fact, right? <laughs> and they're all different versions of the same truth. And that's what's been going on. I think part of the problem is that we have to accept and maybe we haven't enough in telling this story that people are grown-ups. They want to be responsible. They want to understand. And if you treat them like that and you share information, you're going to get a much better reaction. I'm just, I'm just going to interject very slightly because we've come mm. the day after Liverpool have won the Premier League title when we're recording, right? And you mentioned that the pubs are open and everyone flocks to the beaches. Major incidents getting declared in Dorset. So, yeah, the public are grown-ups, but... That has to be mitigated with <laughs> lack of common sense, which has been displayed here. Do you know, I was on Bournemouth Beach uh, something like the 27th of July last year, and there were three of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that's it. So, yeah, uh, sorry, not to, not to interject too much on your point, which I think was a good one. I think the public do need treated like grown-ups in some sort of ways, but, um, I mean, that, that actually raises the question. Media, government, I mean... As, as part of the miscommunication, just the way that people's interactions happen now, just the way that people can, consume can, their information. Can I, can I interject here? Yeah, because I, 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 think, I think the um, issue for me is that the expectations placed were, were bad in so many ways, and they were mostly placed by the government, by um, promising of things that were never going to be possible, and by setting expectations that it was going to be even faster than it than it was. I mean, it, and this is not just true in, in relation to the app, but the promises about when this would be delivered and when it would be functional, when it would be rolled out and things like that were made pretty much without any caveats at all. So not, re, not I mean, as Amanda said, this was developed incredibly fast, but Matt Hancock said it would be developed even faster and mm. said that it would be out there even faster and presumed the results of the pilot when um, saying when, what would happen next. And I think he did a massive disservice to the developers by um, setting things out that they were never going to be able to do and by kind of building it up so that they would fail. And the problem is that the public get the message either direct from Matt Hancock, if they actually watch the the press briefings, and I have mm. to admit, being a politics geek, so I watched every briefing um, in in <laughs> all the way time. through, uh, most of them until about really. I, I got a bit, I got a bit sick of it about about um, kind of a week before the end. That sounds um, like purgatory to me, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it, uh, it's just I can't I can't help myself sometimes with. Oh, I gave up much sooner. Uh, but. But um, if they don't watch it themselves, then they get it through the way those briefings are reported, which often makes it even worse, because even if there are caveats, those caveats are lost by uh, yeah. how it's presented in the Daily Mail or on the BBC or, or, just, or just Just to inform the listeners as well, right, the way that that happens is a thing called the inverse pyramid, where you put the most important point as your editor or editorial slant sort of sees it at the, at the kind of top of the story. And then the idea is that more, most people read the top few paragraphs maybe of a story and don't go right into it. So in terms of, if you consider that fact as well, right, people are only getting whatever said publication chooses to be the key points of any story 
quite a lot of the mm -hmm. time. Not everyone's reading the 800 words that you write. Some people are only reading three paragraphs. So yeah. with that art, some people are only reading a headline increasingly now, um, hence the, the advent of clickbait and such. But yeah, with, and with, and with, with, with Twitter, they read the tw what's in the tweet and don't even click on the link. So again, you just get, you just get the, the, the kind of one-liner is what, mm -hmm. yeah. is what they actually listen to. And that's an art, right? So I, I write quite a lot. And when I submit what I've written, usually it comes back with something I've put near the end because I've told a story and taken the reader to the natural conclusion, moved to the top. And I've had mm. to learn when you tweet things that you, you have to tell the story yeah. in one line. It's so difficult. Yeah, and that, that's that's how you you sort of promote engagement. Um, episode six of the podcast actually speaks a lot about that, about how basically that this divide has been created by Britain's political class and society, and the the media's sort of complicity and role within that. Uh, so yeah, uh, anyone who's listening who's not checked that out, that was a that was a really really fun episode to record and quite cathartic for me to have a bit of a moan about some of the aspects of the media that I don't like. But I think this this topic of of, of the the miscommunication and double speaking confusion around all this is really important. And I think that point about Matt Hancock putting pressure on the developers is an important mm -hmm. one to pick out, Paul. So Amanda, I know, and as listeners to the part one of episode nine will know, they'll know that you know. Terence Eden of mm -hmm. NHSX and that you, you're, you're quite closely connected in there. So with that in mind, um, I know you've had sort of conversations back and forth throughout the process. Um, are you aware that the, the guys there felt pressurised or disappointed or annoyed by any of the government communication? Can, can you shed any light on any of that? No, I can't really, I'm afraid. But I can say I know that they worked incredibly hard. And of course, they're, you know, long-standing, very well-qualified developers who are in NHSX and also in the companies that they were working with. Because it wasn't just, you know, this was something that was contracted, which is where part of the, the costs come from. I know they, they, you know, they really worked hard. But they also would know the old rule when you sup with the devil, you need a long spoon. No, no, the promise. <laughs> what is it? Uh, oh, under, prom under promise and over deliver. Ah, right? yes, yes. So ah, that is yes. the basis of all of this stuff. So I'm quite sure that they weren't saying we'll have a fully completed app because what, you know, by week on Tuesday, what they did was create something very, very quickly that other companies, if you think about a startup going and getting funding and then building something like that, they would have been planning to do this over you know, several quarters and they would be different stages where they would be doing um, testing and things. But of course, this sort of agile methodology that I've already mentioned means that you are constantly evolving what you're doing. So every week you're looking at what you've achieved and changing direction slightly and doing that kind of thing in the public glare without people understanding that that is a norm now must be very difficult. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's an interesting one. And I just find it interesting that under-promise and over-deliver, I think the, the Tory government have gone the other way about it, over-promise and under-deliver yeah. oh. uh, at every stage of this process. <laughs> um, that's at least my take on it. Just want to well, run... maybe Matt Hancock listens. Maybe he'll hear our advice. You never well, know. I'd, I'd, I don't know if he listens to anything, and definitely Dominic Rabb doesn't. Um just on the subject of uh, the, the the Michael View list that I was going through, I just want to rattle through a last few couple of points of that, if that's okay. I'm just coming back to that. So the 
what he said regarding monitoring and, and the automated decision making that the app would do, it said that the data protection impact assessment must acknowledge that the NHSX app systematically monitors public, publicly accessible spaces. It said that it did not set out a valid lawful basis for the solely automated significant decision making it correctly identifies as a cutting. And it also said that the data protection impact assessment describing the logic of automated decisions must be provided under GDPR Article 13. You've mentioned GDPR in in detail already, Amanda. Um, Just on any of those points, Paul, anything to add in terms of providing a bit of clarity for our listeners? Yeah, just just to say the background to the automated decision-making things. We we have, uh, there's a historical concern about decisions being made algorithmically, however you want to describe it, um, by by, uh, automated means without uh, without any um, human involvement. And because of the historical problems with that, that it's set out in the law that you must make that more transparent. You must explain what is the, the logic behind the, the automated decision, and you must allow people ways in. Effectively, and the, the, we talk about the right to an explanation, that you have the right to know how, how decisions are made about you. And that's what this is talking about. Because the, the idea of all these apps and many, many similar systems in, in other contexts, they work because they can do things on scale that we can't do at a, at a human level. We can't get people to do all these things automatically, I mean, manually. So we put in law the kind of accountability to make the automated processes um, less um, obscure, I think is the best way to put it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again. You know... Mm. It does. And these automated processes and a lot of this code is still stuff that's being developed and it's not entirely ready to get things right. So at least if you look at my Tesco deliveries and the substitutions that I'm getting at the moment, that's all <laughs> yeah. done by the same automated kind of process, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you, and you, you, under law, you have the right to find out how they're doing it and you have the right to ask them and they have the obligation to set out in reasonable detail the system uh, how the system does it now it's it all gets very very complicated because it has to be a decision that has some kind of a legal effect in on you something that that actually does something now in this case it would be something that does something it it it, it has an effect on you and that's why they require an explanation as to how it's going to work not in detail but in principle enough to make you understand because otherwise you're not really consenting to something properly and you're not being treated fairly. The data protection requires you to be treated fairly. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Um, The final point on Michael Veal's list is just about how the data protection impact assessment should explain how the privacy and electronic communications regulations are complied with. And this is the key bit for me, both in relation to Bluetooth usage and in relation to embedded trackers. Going to throw to you, Amanda, um, and sort of contextualizing this with the the GAPL, the Google and Apple model. How how does a contact tracing app work with regards to Bluetooth usage and uh, embedded trackers? And what are these? Can you can you explain a bit for our listeners? It's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a very difficult question, and I'm not sure that I know the best way to I explain have, it that by the way, clear. I have broken the rules of journalism so many times of ask one clear and concise question. There's been so many spiels I've gone on where I've asked you three or four things, so blame yeah, me. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. 
I don't know how best to explain that that makes sense. I suppose what happens is your phone activates when it contacts another phone. I don't know how accurate this is. The two phones activate when they come into the sort of sensory space of each other. Mm -hmm. And it triggers allowing one to acknowledge the other and do a handshake. And that then, it still has data going over a database, going over a server. It's just that they don't store that data centrally and make decisions about it. So mm. the, the parameters are set and one will trigger and then contact the other. And that's one of the things that NHSX were really interested in was the, the strength of the signals between the apps. And they were making a, an informed decision using an algorithm, looking at the strength of the connection so that they weren't telling everybody that they'd come into contact with a, a, another person who'd been potentially infected and sending out too many messages. They were trying to manage that process with the centralized database. It was one of the benefits of it. This doesn't have it. It just will notify once you've come in and you've chosen to tell them that you have uh, tested positive or you have symptoms, whichever you know level it is, it will then let other people know. Okay. No, that, Does that give you what you need? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, no. A diff it's a really difficult one to explain in a way that's not just geek words. Uh, the key thing that I, I sort of picked out of that there, and yeah, well done for uh, avoiding all of the, the sort of uh, buzzword bingo. I congratulate you on that one. But the, the, the key thing that I would pick out of that is this idea, and this was one of the repeated themes that came up on part one of episode nine, um, was the part over the, the potential security of data that was harvested in a central location. Now, with that for me, uh, but also, uh, at the, the start of that episode, I spoke to Romilly Broad, who's CEO of Digital Bulletin, a company which tells stories of tech transformation that I'm involved in myself. And what Romilly said is, right, if they're not keeping a central sort of lake of data, then from what, so how, how can it be of use from a pandemic sense if all yeah. of the stuff on the phones is just very much individually focused, you know? And I thought that was a really interesting question to raise. It is, it is. And one of the questions I've got is, how is the Google Apple app actually going to work? Because we don't really see, we don't really know. It's not open sourced. I don't, you know, the Germans are going ahead with it. I'm not quite sure where they are in terms of the, the, the Gapple bit being tested. I haven't seen much in the way of testing. I've heard rumors about one or two problems with it. But, you know, what do we know about that, Paul? Do you know more than me? Um, I don't. Um, what I do know is, I know the kind of the, the, the theory behind it. And, yeah, and, uh, but the actual I, deliverable, the reality, I, what are they actually I, doing? I, what I are they doing with we, our data? Who's got it? I, I don't think we know. And I, I think one of the, one of the um, interesting questions, this goes back to one of the things I said right at the beginning, um, how can this be useful for a pandemic? We have to ask, well, what is it actually trying to do that is mm, going to be yeah. useful in the, in the pandemic? Because if you are looking for just contact information, that is, what phone you've been in, what, who you've been close to, whose phone you've been close to, then that's actually, I mean, relatively, and I mean that absolutely, relatively, relatively simple uh, in in blue the kind of the, the logic of the bluetooth system is it's got limited range so you can only find the, the people who are who are near you and so on and it doesn't matter where you are 
in um, geographical terms. It doesn't matter anything else about you. All it's doing is kind of creating a list of the phones who you've been into, into contact with. Mm. When, and, and if that's what you want, then that's one thing. If you also want um, the geographical stuff so that you can then kind of map the, 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 how the, the virus has been spreading and so on, that's a different task. And I think we, the German app, as I understand, is not trying to do that different task. The Gapple app, Gapple idea was not to do that task, but just to do the contact tracing. And, and whereas the NHS app, app, NHS app was trying to do the other and more at the same time. Now, it may be that that other thing is more useful. It may be that it's actually a more appropriate thing to be doing with this tech. But we need to be clear, and we needed to be clear at the beginning, what we were actually trying to do and, and, and why. Mm. Paul, I think that's a really good point, but I think it brings us to a bigger one, which is that the app is a very, very small part of the bigger picture of contract yeah. tracing. And actually, some of the controversy that's sometimes been attributed to NHSX isn't about them at all. It's actually about the data that's being captured sure. by the, the contact tracers. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Mm. Sure. I, I think an interesting thing here is, I suggested in episode one that if you did have this sort of centralised data lake, then this could potentially be your key to opening up mass participation events to the public once again. So if you've got your, your telephone COVID passport, if you want yeah. to call it that, right, then you can go to the football match, you can go to the um, concert, you can go to whatever you want to go to because you, you've got that. And I thought Oh, when this app was in development, I thought, right, that's a really positive aspect here. This could really help us accelerate and all of the, the, the sort of subsequent benefits of that, the economy and all of that stuff, helping to G all those things up. I thought there was a real opportunity there. So for the British government to then abandon that, have they bailed on this too early? Is, is well, that, well, uh, well, and I know you didn't like my sort of terminology, Amanda. Well, I've been with you earlier. But, we'll um, yeah, like on, on the basis that they're no longer sort of mm. going full steam ahead with this. Have they have bailed too early? That, that, that's basically what I yeah. want. I mean, my understanding is that they're still working on an app. It is just not the original NHSX one that went to being tested on the Isle of Wight. And maybe if they hadn't been so public in the testing, it would be easier to, to tell that story. But I also believe, as I think we talked about in episode one, that they've been working on the, the Gapple version, the back end, in parallel, but less publicly than this the whole way through. Mm. So I think that's there. We talked about Germany a lot. Singapore have had a, a track and trace app since before we went into lockdown. Um, and that's open sourced as well. So we could have taken it and shared it and we didn't. I'm not quite sure why nobody's really just thought about doing that and everybody's gone off and done their own thing. And they're actually now at a stage where not only are they using it on phones, but you'll like this. They're using it on wearables. So your Fitbit, whatever mm -hmm. it is you're, you're measuring. And that might even be the way forward for things like your concerts, you know, a bracelet device that's going to be able to interact with track and trace as well. Mm. Work more for kids and things too. Is it possible technologically with the, the Gapple model and the way it works to do anything like the elk of what I was suggesting? Or is that is that just not within the capabilities of the API and, and the way 
of 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 how their sort of API and the the system works. I don't think we know enough yet. I, I mean, no, Paul may disagree. I just don't think we've got. An, this is one of the things that's slightly concerning. I'm sure you know the two major companies with massive massive resources. And if you think 11 million is a lot, what they'll have spent on this will be that the 11 <laughs> million will be a drop in the ocean. Yeah. But um, they they're still in testing, as far as I understand it. They haven't published a lot of feedback and they haven't shared a lot of information. So until we have that. And you get back to that old story. I mean, we talked in the first episode about the NHS brand and how much people believe in that and trust the NHS. Mm -hmm. You then have to look at how this is going to work. Is it going to be just the NHS that gets our data when we do have an app and when we're working with um, the track and trace folk? Or is it also going to be somehow shared with Google and Apple? Yeah, and that's others. a very um, interesting so question. Can, can I, can I um, bring in a couple of kind of what I think are, are, are important points in relation to this. One is we don't know what data will be gathered through this, but we need to remember that the data that's gathered through this um, can be used to derive further data by working with other data. So if even if um, the, the GAPL system only actually monitors the, 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 the contact tracing, it's possible that that contact tracing can then be um, further analyzed with other information that, that Google and Apple might have or that, that our government might have in order to get to gain the other data that you, you started off by, by wanting. Now, I'm putting this in very vague terms, mostly because we only know in vague terms what's, what's, what's going on here. The surface level information is only a small part of the story and it's only ever a small part of the story. Um, one of the things that was interesting about the GAPL um, idea was that the, the data would be going, would be removed almost immediately afterwards. Once you've got it, you've, you, you, when the contact's done, it's going to go. And mm. it was kind of built into the, to the system. The opposite was true with the NHS X app, that they were actually retaining the right to keep it pretty much forever. Um, as, as far as we can tell from the... I don't the, think that's right, Paul. I think that was misreported in certain areas of the press because I did look into it at the time and I think actually that was attributed to them, but it wasn't. It was the 20-year thing you're talking about. Yeah. And that was actually not for the app. That was for the track and trace. But the way it was sure. reported gave the wrong information. Sure. But I think, I, 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 can you really separate the app information from the rest? Because after you start using it, you've got to work with everything together. And, and, I, and I'm not even saying that it's necessarily wrong to keep the data for a longer longer time it depends on what your aims are for using using and the data didn't they backtrack very quickly on that i thought that had changed again as soon as it, it was again released, it comes it back to days yeah it comes back yeah. to this topic of misinformation and nobody knows the true story is and, and, and I, because I, I know something that that Jonathan Van Tam said in one of uh, in an unguarded moment was about how useful this would be for for future um, analysis um, in other directions and and so on. And I can see the attraction and I can see the motivation. The problem is, and this is a, a kind of kind of political problem. Right now, people don't trust this government. Right now, particularly after the Dominic Cummings um, saga, people don't trust the government with our data. We do trust the NHS, at least to some degree, though there's some question about their data practices at times. But how do we maintain the trust in sufficient 
at sufficient levels that people are willing to, to, to get involved, whilst we have an untrustworthy government, this is the challenge. How can NHS X connect itself to the NHS while separating itself from the government? And in the current political climate, it can't because we have what I would call a very hands-on government who wants to to make everything theirs, really. And and I I mean, I, I much though I would like to think that a new version of the app involving um, the the Gapple system would get more trust than the old one that has been abandoned, whether prematurely or not, mm. I'm not convinced that it will, because I think the government has lost so much trust um, over the last, uh, well, certainly during the pandemic and probably before. I don't know how that trust is regained. And I don't see any signs of them doing any of the things that they need to do to to regain our trust. And that makes things very, very difficult. Now, I don't want to get into politics, right? But mm. I think if you're told an election tomorrow, the Conservatives would win. Polling would indicate such, um, from, from what I can gather. So with that in mind, how can we be at a stage where the government has no trust, yet the Tories would still win an election? What does that say about the state of politics in this country? <laughs> very bad things. <laughs> <laughs> No worries. And remember, our, our political system doesn't require you to have a majority of people vote for you uh, and to, in order to, to win. First and, past the post. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get into politics. No, I no, think, no, no, no. I think there is something I would add to that. So when they pulled the app that everybody's familiar with that was being tested on the Isle of Wight, uh, the NHS X website put a statement on with government appointed Baroness Dido Harding and Matt Hancock doing the blog. So, you know, instead of the CEO NHS X had previously blogged about what was going on, those two did the blog pulling it. Um, and actually, with the pandemic, I think in many ways that is totally appropriate because you want to see government being involved. So I think there's a real dichotomy going on here yeah. in that space because I, I want government to own this. I've been complaining that they haven't been putting statements about it being open sourced out publicly because other governments have. Mm. So there's a real fine line there. But I think that the issue of them being involved is one thing and the issue of any trust in government is a totally different one. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's. I think that's. It's, yeah. I, I can't see an easy way out of this. That's the 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 main thing. I can't see a way that this is going to be um, resolved. Yeah. So, Paul, I understand you're just about to leave the call. Uh, you've got some breakfast to prepare uh, for your daughters. That right? That's right. But you will be back with us in the meantime. I will be back shortly. Yes. <laughs> I wish you were making me breakfast. I'm starving. <laughs> I'm quite hungry as well. But on oh. that point. Um, <laughs> Just because you're saying you'll be back, do you know what came into my head was, I will admit, and this is probably the wee boy, and it was the Terminator. So um, what yeah, I'll say yeah. is, hasta la vista, Paul. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> and we'll see you Bye. in a few moments. Um, so, Amanda, um, over to yourself. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you something. Okay. So we, as I think I mentioned in the first podcast, but I've also said here, don't listen to myself, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um we talked, I think, about the kids' competition that we were doing and that we'd been distributing these mini-moo gloves to kids for free so that they could participate in a competition. We were going to bring them to London as a prize and they were going to meet Image and Heat. We had to pool that because of the pandemic. 
Mm -hmm. We've shared more gloves with more kids. In about a week, I'm going to go very public on the program that we're putting in place, but we have a supporter who's going to give us the funding to distribute 3,000 mini versions of those kids, kits rather, to kids throughout the UK. Brilliant. Um, and we're going to run the course publicly through August as a summer camp for them. Can That's we amazing. Put that in? Can we mention that somewhere? Because it's, it's not going to cost anybody anything, and we're just working out, talking to a high street retailer actually, about whether they would distribute it for us so it makes it easy for folk. You just, ha- you just have. I'm quite happy. Oh, you recorded all of that. You're happy I've, to. I've got all of that okay. in the recording, and more than happy to keep it in because it's a fantastic initiative, Amanda. Yeah. And can you tell us who the supporter is, or are they are? Uh, I will in a week. I just haven't got the contract <laughs> finally signed. We'll have a press release in about a week on it. Um, no worries, and obviously very, very uh, generous. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's good. Um, so obviously, just two of us for the time being, Amanda. What I want mm-hmm. to do is I want to focus with you on the stuff that I feel is is, is really particularly within your sort of realm of expertise. So how is it going to work? Right, we are we are moving to working with the Google and Apple model. How's that going to work from a tech perspective? This is where we get back to what I said to you before, and you're not going to be particularly happy because it doesn't make great content. We don't know really. You mm. know, they've built this thing, they've released the API, it's not open, we can't see it, they've released it to So why would it be open then? Right? Well, what would the reasoning be for them not releasing that publicly? I don't think there's a good one. No, interesting. Uh, it's, it's probably just... I mean, the sort of corporate espionage type thing, maybe? Like... I don't know. I doubt it. Um, if you look, a lot of Apple software is built on open, but it's not shared, so it's not open. Uh, Google are... What does that mean? Right. So the way I generally explain it to people is, have you ever looked at a computer and watched when the black box appears and you see loads of numbers and letters and things scrolling really, really fast? Uh, I've seen it on films and stuff. Uh, right. What you were talking about there was MS-DOS on an old Windows machine. But, right. Uh, so you've obviously not broken your, your system as often as I have. <laughs> so when you write computer code as an individual, mm-hmm. you write it in a language. So it's like speaking French or German. If you understand it, if it's Python or C++, whatever the language is called, yep. you've learned the language and you can write it as a human. And that's mm-hmm. human-readable code. The mm-hmm. computer works on binary, and binary is different from the human readable. The human readable is called the source, and the binary is what the computer works with. So open source is where you share the human readable. Now, if mm-hmm. you think about it, for decades, I mean, software is not that old, and it evolves all the time, but for decades, the business model was you shared the computer readable that was no use to people, mm-hmm. and you didn't share the human readable, and that's closed or proprietary. If you share the human readable, people can add to it, they can make it work with other things, they can change it. Um, You get concerns around security, but those are dealt with in the way that you you make things. So I don't think that's what's wrong with Google and Apple. If there were really concerns about that, you wouldn't see particular countries doing it. And it may be that they plan to open it. Google in particular is really good at opening things up. If you look at Android, Mm -hmm. Android, the whole operating system is open, and that's what... um, really brought open source into people's day-to-day lives. It's always there. The internet is based on it. Almost all of the cloud infrastructure is open. And all, you know, companies like uh, Microsoft with Azure, Google Cloud, AWS, all of their infrastructure is built on top of open source. Mm-hmm. And that, that 
cloud piece is actually what caused the change. So Microsoft was always known as a, a proprietary company, one that didn't share the human readable bit. And one of the main reasons they've moved to being a huge contributor now to this collaborative open source way of working is that the cloud is sitting on it and they have to be able to work with it and contribute to it. Mm. So it's probably the future. Um, you know, if you look, my old boss, a guy called Mark Shuttleworth, uh, talks about the, the analog lens of the past, right? So if you look back, a few big companies owned all the code, right? Software belonged to them. You'd go to Oracle or IBM or Microsoft. It's very different today. When you look at all the different companies involved in any area of digital transformation, digitization, you'll see that there are likely to be hundreds of companies, some small, some big, all of them having software because everybody needs software today. It's mm -hmm. not something that only the tech companies use. Every single company works with it and they work with it in either what they make, what they distribute or how it's consumed by people. Okay. Some really interesting points made there. Um, and it's worth, I think it's worth people having just a bit more knowledge on, on the way all of this works because tech's obviously advancing. And I think, Every one of us as, as sort of individuals who aren't involved in the tech sector, we, I mean, we have our phones, we have our laptops, we have our sort of little bit where we plug into the matrix, but having a greater appreciation for how it works and how these companies work, yeah. especially and those that own all of our data pretty much. Well, that's exactly the point. So what we've done with Open UK, I think it's world leading. We've looked at the fact that you've, you know, we're all advocates of open source software because we like collaboration. We understand that that's the way that the best software is built. But we've also brought open hardware and open data into it. And we merge the three and we call it open technology. And we're all about bringing those together because you can reduce carbon emissions in data centers, which are the places that hold all the servers that build the cloud. Um, you can reduce that massively by having open hardware. So there's lots of things going on in a sort of happenstance of different technologies coming together at the same time. And they improve everybody's lives, but also they improve transparency. And particularly when you get to open data, we all want to know what's been done with our data, right? Mm. We also want to know that the data that's there isn't all locked into big companies under confidentiality arrangements where it can't be shared. So there's lots of initiatives. We have one starting um, with the UK company Arup in the autumn, looking at how we can open up the data around the pandemic to allow everybody to benefit from it in the future in terms of creating new developments and you know learning from the experience. Yeah, and I think that's the, I mean, as I kind of alluded to earlier, just from a humanity perspective, what we've yep. got to try and do here. Now, just in terms of moving to the scalpel model, I sort of, with my very limited technical knowledge, surmise that the main advantage of this will be from a kind of interoperability perspective yeah. in terms of other countries uh, and making sure that we are not just this it's the uk's nhs x app and if you go sort of three miles out of dover that's yeah. it you've had it you know um i think that interoperability the kind of cross-country thing and we, we obviously mentioned about the germany thing sort of going exactly orders now yeah um, all of that seems to be the the main advantage for me is that what what other advantages are there potentially to to moving to this model 
it, it's not entirely true, but Google and Apple obviously know their operating systems. So Android and Apple OS, the iOS that sits on your phones, they, they create it. So they manage that in the Android case in collaboration with many folk. But they should, in theory, have the best understanding of it. And one of the problems that you have in creating an app is making it work. So you've probably looked at something that you use beautifully on your computer that looks terrible on your phone or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that's only the look and feel, not the actual infrastructure of that bit of technology. So making it work in a way that is seamless across two very different phones, Apple and Google, is important. But you've also then got to think about the handsets because all the different, you know, whether you're using a Samsung or, um, God, I can't think of another one. All the ones I can think of don't make handsets anymore. But whatever manufacturer's handsets you're using, you want the app, the app to run on that and sometimes they need to be tailored to look right or to work right. If you think about it, things like different screen sizes will make a difference and the back-end technology does too. Mm. So they have an advantage there because they also work with all of the handset manufacturers um, in rolling that out and managing things like updates and upgrades. And that's going to be important because even if they test it, there are still going to be changes made. I mean, when you use any app, you'll get a message now and then saying, go to the app store and upgrade. And that's going to need to be done regularly as they develop the app. Is there going to be an impact from the perspective of these companies, obviously harvesting all of this data and the need for them to make that more transparent to, to governments in the, in the yeah. midst of this pandemic? Well, you're saying making it transparent to governments. They'll obviously have to do that as part of the process of agreeing how they're working together, going into testing before they launch it, or you were talking about test before they launch it. I'd like to know how they're going to explain it to us, because I've said to you right at the start, I think in the last episode, I'm not sure how I personally feel. Generally, I will do what I believe is for the greater good. So if it is something that I have to do, I will. But I also don't want, I, I want to know what they're doing with my data. I just mm -hmm. want to be treated, as I said, like an adult and to have that shared with me and to be able to make my own decisions. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think that makes complete sense. And I think just at that, I've had a message on my phone and he's just joined back into the chat. Paul is back with us. So what did the master chef rustle up this morning, Paul? Did you have some breakfast um, yourself or was it just for um, your daughter? I, I had my own breakfast some hours ago. Um, it was pancakes for her. Oh, American nice. style or British style? <laughs> British style pancakes. Excellent. Oh. Any extras? A wee bit of maple syrup or anything like that? Um, uh, jam. Oh, jam and pancakes. Um, I've not had that since pancakes. I was at my grand's about 20 years ago, that particular yes. combination of things. You've put me in the mood for putting jam in a pancake. Yeah, do it like that, no that's gonna that's there's gonna be that's what we're doing that's my it's a pancake demic i am going to yes. um <laughs> i'm gonna go i'm gonna go and find some jam and then uh, do that but it's probably going to turn into lunch at this rate such as the uh, the volume of discussion we were having while you were away paul me and amanda were just talking a bit about sort of the the moving to the google and apple model how that would work from a an interoperability perspective now obviously with your background in tech as well prior to, to entering the, the field you're in now. What do you think the kind of main potential advantages could be other than the interoperability from, from working with the, the, the GAPL model? And from a techie perspective, do you have any observations on that so the, generally? The, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Amanda is 
far more techy than me in, in these terms. But the, the, the two main advantages are, in, are that I see are the interoperability um, and the certainty of it working with Apple and Google phones. It, mm. it, I mean, you just just the the the. the you're much more likely to get it work to work on the the um, iOS and Android systems if you're working directly with them, and you won't have any issues with their um, causing objections to to the app if you're working according uh, working with them on according to their their, their kind of specifications. Um, I, I, there is another side to it, and I, and and I and I understand the um, the fear. That we're actually giving too much power to um, to, to, to corporations here, yeah. and corporations having more power than governments, and and so on. And and I, I have a particular perspective on that, which is um, we as individuals, as humans, are often squeezed between uh, overwhelmingly powerful corporations and untrustworthy governments. And the tactic that I advocate is to use whichever one is hap- happens to be on our side at the time. So if they're doing, if governments are doing <laughs> something good, we support them. And if corporations are doing something good, we support them. And conversely, if they're doing things that are bad, we have to kind of resist them. The problem comes when the two are both doing the same things that are both bad for us, so we get squeezed in, in the middle. And mm. then all we have left is a little bit of civil disobedience. And we're not very good at that, frankly, in the current current world, because we have basically given ourselves over to um the the big corporations in in the way that we use our tech at the moment so we have to kind of accept that to a degree and what comes with it but also fight where we can fight and and, and nudge where we can nudge so you see what i mean how how do we do that from an individual perspective then other than just don't have a phone and don't go um, on the internet <laughs> it's 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 quite difficult but you have to ask yourself why is it that google and apple went out of their way to support a privacy friendly version of this kind of a, a kind of a system and there's only one reason it's not because they're suddenly morally in favor of privacy and things like that it's because they think their users would would want it. So somehow we have managed to change um, at least some of the perspectives so that they think that we care about privacy more than they they used to think we do. How did that happen? Well, mostly with us banging on about it and making privacy-friendly decisions from time to time. Apple's been using privacy as a selling point for, for a number of years mm-hmm. now, and there are strong commercial reasons why they why they do that. But those are associated with the decisions that we have made. Um, so our decisions, mm. we are tiny, but there are a lot of us. So if enough of us make decisions in particular ways, then, then things can start to move. I think Thinking that's a about real... what you just said, mm. Paul, you know, it's interesting. So one of the things there is uh, you know, Google and Apple Gapple were very quick to come out and talk about what they were building and their collaboration. And you've said roughly what I said, different ways, different uh, yep. lens on the same points. I wonder whether they actually approach governments and try to get everybody around the table and collaborate in a proper way. I've never seen any reportage of it. I don't know if you have. Yeah, I, I haven't. Um, I know. I Would was, we hear I was, about it if they did, is my sort of thought. Well, we that. might. And I, Interesting. I was rather, rather shocked by the 
immediate response by Apple to Matt Hancock saying, well, we've been working with Apple for, for, for ages. They said, no, you haven't. And um, I don't know whether that's even true, <laughs> but they, they don't normally talk very much about these, these kinds of things. When they cooperate with each other, it's mostly quite, quite um, behind the scenes. But in a case like this, where it's not just that they need to work together, but they need to convince us to, to cooperate with them too, because these apps will only work if there's a decent take up of them. Yeah. They do you need think to be more open? Do you, th well, exactly, but do you think the public would have reacted better if, in a daily briefing, whoever it was that was giving the briefing said, and our continued collaboration with the governments of XYZ country, because we're all in it together, and Google and Apple, because they are the, the companies who run the, the major operating systems, is going forward in this way. Do you think that would have got a better response from people, Paul? It would have from the people that I know, but I live in a bubble, as we, as we, we all do. <laughs> we actually all do at the moment. Yeah, exactly. It's official. <laughs> people like me would certainly have been more, um, more would, would have been happier about it and, and would have been more willing to trust them. Whether the general public will, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect they probably would, actually. I, I, I'm, I think that we're looking for cooperation in relation mm -hmm. to, this, the, to this, this particular situation. It's one of those rare things that could convince us, yeah, yeah, we should work with other countries, yeah, we should work with corporations, we should really be all in it together. Normally when people say that, you, you kind of sigh and think, oh, they're just saying it for the, for the effect. Yeah. I think in, this is one of those few situations where, where, where it could have worked. Can I just do the thing that I always do, which my mates hate me for back when you were allowed to be around the pub, and that's say, uh, yeah, corporation tax, guys. I mean, you talk. Uh, I found the point you yeah. made there, Paul, about being squeezed in between um, greedy corporations and untrustworthy governments. It was a really pertinent one. So if that's the case, I mean, could this, uh, viva la revolution, could this be used as the potential trigger point for saying to, to these bigger companies, yeah, we'll work with you, but pay your taxes? Yeah, I mean, it should should have been for a long time. The problem is that at the same time as we say pay your taxes, we also offer sweetheart deals to try to convince these companies to invest more in our particular country. So in Ireland, Ireland one of the reasons Ireland has the European centres of so many corporations is because of the tax deals that the Irish offered to the, to the corporations. Yeah. So we have, we have a, a kind of... Um, the, the competition works in country-by-country country way as well as company-by-company company way. So it's... It, I don't see that this as being a, a major solution unless the countries decide to work together on it and there's little sign of it. I mean, frankly, Brexit is going to be a great deal about trying to get people to invest in Britain by offering dodgy tax deals, I suspect. <laughs> Mm. I was going to ask about the Brexit impact. Yeah, on you go, Amanda. No, I was just going to say that the, the tech sector collaborates. And maybe 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. If you look at somebody like the Linux Foundation or OpenStack, you see these big collaborations with direct competitors able to work in co-opetition. It's a really good way to remember co-opetition. Mm -hmm. I think it's a sort of inevitability as we, and the pandemic may help with this, as we see that um, digitization has to be at the heart of everything, right? So the, the app isn't the only solution. The app is part of a bigger picture and track and trace. 
but we do accept that everybody sitting at home needs their digital technology. We're really keen on seeing more inclusion there, making sure that everybody's got access to devices and to the, the internet. The government are probably, I imagine, following in the slipstream there. And I, I hope that we will see them, even in a Brexit environment, understanding that we have to collaborate more. Um, even if we're outside of the, the European Union, we're still in Europe and we will need to collaborate within Europe and beyond on different technologies, whether that's building the new cloud with Gaia-X or something else. How much does the tech sector kind of, I mean, you, you could put this one or two ways, you could either say transcend or exempt itself from the whole Brexit sort of shenanigans? Because, I mean, it, it's different to any other sort of sector isn't it? Sector of industry, the technology sector, and particularly, I mean, it's magnified massively within a pandemic. So, I mean, do you think almost it's going to be one of the one of the areas within the UK and, and one of the areas that we do remain sort of very international, even with the, the sort of insulating effect that Brexit is going to have? I don't know how political we can get, <laughs> I can get here. Go as political as you want, Paul, but I'll hear from you, Amanda, first, actually. Okay. From the tech perspective, in my own case, I've spent 20 years working internationally. And one of the reasons that I said I would get involved and try and build Open UK was Brexit. And what I realized was I've had the privilege of going to hundreds, maybe even thousands of conferences in that time and meeting lots and lots of people from the UK who are doing great work all over the world. Mm -hmm. but they don't know each other right and we are an island but and that's not specific to the uk geographically folk don't know each other doing the same things they know each other on the global scale in tech because we've all worked collaboratively for such a long time and you've seen a shift in the last 10 years so that even companies you wouldn't have expected to do that do that now mm -hmm. and i think actually in some ways we're looking inwards and you're seeing this in every country with things like digital sovereignty you know the germans are really leading in that but you have to do that in a collaborative way and we have to keep collaborating everybody's doing the same stuff it would be way too expensive for us to try and do it alone i don't think there's ever been a more important time than brexit for us to be seen to be collaborating Hmm. Paul, uh, you wanted to go political. Feel so, free to uh, come yeah, in. My, my, my political stuff, I, that the people that I know in tech were almost universally uh, Remainers. And there's, it, you might say, okay, somebody like me is likely to mainly know Remainers. But, the, but one of the big reasons was that they do now, they do see the need for cooperation. They, do, they don't mm -hmm. like the idea of being separated because they're just starting to see some degree some levels of cooperation that that hadn't been seen before and it felt like a, a step backwards away from that that um um cooperation and it part of a bigger movement um as amanda uh, referred to the of of kind of geolocalization in various various different ways and and kind of the the great firewall of China being kind of replicated um, elsewhere, um, and I think Amanda's right. We need to find a way for that not to happen. I don't think I'm as optimistic as she is about about whether it actually will happen. Mm. Um, I would like it to happen, and there, there are so many good people who would like it like it to happen. But we also live in in, in a uh, an environment. A political environment where um, 
there's such momentum in the other direction that it's really hard to fight. Mm. I, think, I, think I, think it's, I think it's polarity, by the way. Like, I think there's momentum in both directions. I just think one's getting a lot more sure. coverage than the other. Sorry, Amanda, carry on. No, no, I was going to say, we will see a lot more of that. We will see a lot more focusing on our own geographical locations and what's happening and people wanting some level of protection, you know, with sovereignty in their data, et cetera, sitting with their own governments. And AI and the whole ethics and morals around that is going to push further and further down that, people wanting to know that they're safe. But I think that there's been, a, for me, a big shift in the last 20 years. The first 10 coming from sort of grassroots community around free and open source software, that building out, getting into hardware and data, and open source becoming a mainstream thing and inevitability. And to do that, you have to collaborate, and the big companies have understood it. And I think ultimately, I am optimistic, and I think we just have to keep plugging away at it, and eventually government will understand that that's how, if you want to attract developers what they need, which they need now, they'll have to do things in the open. And that there should, over time, be a shift. I just think it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle for a while, Paul. Yeah, yeah. so do I. But what, what I would really like is some kind of... Um, kind of, how can I put it? It's some kind of story emerging from what's happened now about why it is that the, 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 the secrecy and protectionism has been the worst part of the way this has been done and why mm. how much it could have been done better if it had been done more openly and more transparently. Yeah. You know, Somehow, Paul, somebody has to say that properly. We're mm. starting a, a project in the autumn with the, the company Arab sponsoring us. We were meant to start in March looking at open data and we've refocused it slightly and we're going to look at data from the pandemic that's currently closed and how we can open it. We should definitely get you involved and you I and I should delighted. come back in a year and talk to Stuart about how we've managed to persuade government to join in with us. That would be fabulous. Here's hoping that that's, that's what happens. And just, just, just in terms of maybe to, to try and put a sort of I always like to end in a kind of positive spin. And I realise that you need to go quite soon, Amanda. So I'll maybe ask you the, the two forthcoming questions that I've, I've got. I've got, I've got questions that I want to ask both of you, and I'll, I'll do it both. But just a point I would like to make is regarding society. So obviously in the tech sector, as you say, there's been a lot of collaboration over the years of people working internationally. So a person in Silicon Valley and a person sitting programming in their bedroom in West Kilbride, where I am now, uh, that, that, that can happen. And for years and years, these techie sort of types have been collaborating mm -hmm. internationally and have been interacting. What yeah. we've seen as a result of this pandemic is society at large, um, at least in the, the developed world, have embraced technology you're seeing yeah. um older people younger people um gathering for zoom quizzes and all of that sort of stuff and mm -hmm. that has been just as and it's a natural sort of byproduct of the the, the pandemic thing and lockdown yeah. is that people are beginning to embrace that on on a more mass scale so perhaps yeah. what i'm thinking is that one of the things that could mitigate brexit just a wee bit is the fact that that this sort of interactivity, albeit from remote places, seems to be something that is now becoming more widespread. And I think you're going to see a massive impact on the way that jobs are and the way that the economy actually functions as a result of all of this. Would you guys agree? I would hope so. Mm. Yeah. 
you know, I'm from rural Scotland too, and it's a really interesting one. I want to try and help there and make sure that kids growing up understand that you don't have to move as I did away from Scotland to London or away from some part of rural England to London to have a, a future doing certain things anymore. The world is a different place and these kids will have the potential to sit maybe somewhere even more rural than West Kilbride, but work <laughs> with somebody in you know, the Bay Area and San Francisco. That, that world, that opportunity is open to them. And I'm hoping that there'll be a shift in understanding as a, a silver lining from the pandemic with people starting to use these technologies. It's mm. becoming really accessible. Although I would rather we were on Jitsi, which is open than Zoom. <laughs> Fair play. Paul, uh, anything to add to that? Very good answer. Um, I, I would say, you know, I, I meant, you mentioned at the start I was a bit of an, entre an internet entrepreneur in the, the old days. What I was actually trying to do, I was in South Devon, rural South Devon, trying to convince people that they should be using the internet in the early days of the internet. And uh, I got some funding from Europe to do it, and a, a bunch of us worked together. But we were too early, you know, we, we, mm. we really couldn't get people to get very excited and it needed something to trigger it. And I think that, as Amanda said, maybe this mm. pandemic can be the thing that triggers us to actually change the way that we, yeah. uh, that we do this. I would like to think so, but yeah. I'm also an old cynic at heart as well. And, I'm, and I, I have a feeling we might fall back into the old ways before we even realise um, well, there'll be a blip. What, what People will go back to the offices, right? People will go back to offices and to work and there'll be a blip. And we'll have to find a way to sort of keep this culture of collaboration and interaction going once people are back in what they call that water cooler conversation space around yeah. the office. Yeah. And that will be slightly different from what we've experienced in the last few months. But like you, Paul, you know, I've been around a long time. 20 years ago, I worked for Dixon's The Retailers. And um, mm -hmm. I was in the legal team and I looked after FreeServe, if anybody remembers that. It mm -hmm. was a, a big yep. ISP. Mm. And I was really lucky 20 years ago to see things like internet fridges. But they didn't catch on. And tablets long before iPads didn't catch on. In what yeah, you I had needed, a palm pilot. <laughs> right, me too. What you <laughs> needed was devices to be available to people and decent internet connectivity. Because we could have done a lot of this 20 years ago technology-wise, Obviously, we've still been developing, it's improved, but we're at a moment in time where we have that. And it's what we do with it that's important, I think. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a space to be, to be very innovative right now. Weary of the time for you, Amanda, so I want to ask you a quick fire two questions and then I shall let you go. So um, what positives, what are the main positives you think we can take from the government's decision to change tack? I think the fact that it's open sourced the front end of the app and I'm relatively reliably informed that the updated version of that is due to be released at lunchtime today, although if it's not, it will be there very shortly mm. and that that can be reused. I think that's the, the key for me. If we understand how to collaborate and how to be open, that's critical. Excellent. Um, just as a point of note, if it is released at lunchtime today, which time of recording is Friday, this podcast will probably be out after that. But um, given that the media narrative is it's been beset by delays, then maybe it won't arrive today at lunchtime. Anyway, um, final one for yourself. In a year's time, where do you think we are going to be in terms of all of this? How much further forward will we be in terms of having technology, just in a general sense, that mm -hmm. supports the fight against this pandemic? I'd like to think that Paul and I are back talking to you about having collaborated, having met on this podcast today in open data and brought lots of people we know into that space so that they can look at how we take a lot of the data that's currently closed, confidential and not being shared 
into something where we can learn for the future from what's happened in the pandemic using other open technologies, but particularly with open data. Brilliant. And just finally, where can people find you if they want to speak to you? Uh, at Amanda Brock UK on Twitter is probably the easiest if you're that way inclined. I'm on LinkedIn and hello at openuk.uk if you want to use email. Brilliant stuff. Amanda, thank you very much for your time. Paul, I think you're happy to sit for another sort of five, ten minutes and just go through some stuff. Surely. Yeah. Um, just Paul, when, yeah, bye bye. Nice to meet you. I'll follow up with you separately, Paul. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye bye. Thank you. No bye problem. Bye. bye. That's what we like to be here. We like to be the conduit for creativity, the the sort of the base from which innovation and positivity can happen. And it sounds like you guys have some some interesting stuff that you'll be able to collaborate on. And I'd quite like Amanda's sort of dropped off now, Paul. But um, I think we should keep this dream team together if you're up for it. Get you guys back on chatting again about various. That would be great. Yeah, and I think we could. I think we can take the debate wider than than I actually thought we could have prior to the call. I think we can we can veer into a lot of areas just with regards to privacy in general, even. Um, and yeah, yeah, I can I can definitely see us rehashing this in various ways. Just on what Amanda was saying there, though, um, in terms of the, the the kind of positives we can take. Uh, she mentioned about the open source. So what positives do you think we can take from the the government's decision? To, to change tack and to, to change decision. Now, I'm just going to bring up a question that I did have written earlier and skipped over. Um, our guest on part one of episode nine, Jonathan Martin, he said that it would be a disaster if the government abandoned the development of that app. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, no, I think the opposite. I think it's a very good sign that the, that the government abandoned it. Um, so long as the way they've abandoned it is a um, kind of creative one. By that I mean so that they don't abandon all the learning, they just abandon the specific approach that they were taking to to use that learning. So, so I mean, we've talked about this sometime before. There's a great deal that they, they would have learned that will have been useful. And we need to get the value from that. But if they had been continuing to plow ahead with this same approach despite all the things that people were saying despite the technical problems despite the way that other countries germany is the best example had switched from one system to another system and seemingly successfully then it would have shown pig-headedness exceptionalism and um, a kind of an attitude that is very very unlikely to be um, productive in the future. So if they can learn, then that's a good thing. Do you if think they, they can? can uh, well, I'm still waiting to see whether they can learn. And I think we'll learn a lot more about whether they can learn in the next kind of month or so. Um, if they've reached a good position, as a, whether kind of by accident or kind of because they've been pushed, then they've still reached a good position. Because I think it's in, in overall terms, it would be better to have a good, strong, functional testing and manual tracing system supported potentially by an app than this idea of an all singing and dancing app with a little bit of um, manual stuff on the side because the, the other solution is a better one. We need the, the, the kind of the, the manual support. If through this they can learn to do less of what I describe as the magical thinking that somehow we can solve all our problems with a, a nice bit of fancy tech, then that will be a good result for the future. 
Now, we shall see. And I, I, I think we didn't, we didn't really see, we don't know yet whether they've learned from their other example of this, um, the idea of a smart border in, um, on the island mm. of Ireland. Have they learned that that was an unbelievably stupid idea and should have been abandoned before it was even thought of? I don't know. It's not talked about much anymore because they simply shifted the border to um, the border in the Irish Sea. Um, part of the reason they should have said we've had to do this is because smart borders are a very, very silly idea that whose time has not come. Mm. If they could learn that sort of lesson and be open about it, then we'll have, then we'll have benefited massively from them having abandoned the app. Um, and for that reason, I don't think it's a disaster they've abandoned it. I think it would have been a disaster if they ploughed on and, frankly, kept lying about it working. The, the lies about the pilot in, in the Isle of Wight, the continued, oh, it's going well, it's going well, it's going well, oops, we've abandoned it, was a, that, that, that was farcical and damaging to everybody. Yeah. If we can somehow convince them to be more open and honest about it, then we'll be much better off. Yeah, and I think it comes back to the point you made about if you can marry the, the if you if you can sort of juxtapose the the lack of trust in the government, but the trust in the NHS, and try and get people on board with something. Um, I mean, we don't even know what's going to happen with this. It's probably going to be branded NHS something anyway, because yeah. I think the government recognises the strength of that brand but i just want to come on to the the, the point about the kind of double speak because we've, we've touched on it and we had a really interesting pre-podcast chat like me yourself and amanda um just to let the listeners know about all of that so it's basically about the the press's role in this so for example we mentioned the fact that it was the bbc who reported first the decision to abandon the app, which was later confirmed by the government. Now, I, yeah. I mentioned that when I was at sort of journalism school um, a decade or so ago now, what we were taught was the editorial priorities at Sky News say were to get the story out first, to make sure you were first with it, and then follow up later with more sort of better thought out stuff. And the BBC was different. The BBC it was like, take your time, craft the story, um, make sure you're telling it from a, a fair and accurate perspective. Now, it seems to me that everything's flipped here. It's Sky News who seem to yeah. be doing the more thought out, considered, asking questions, pondering stuff, putting stuff to, to, to ministers where possible kind of stuff. And the BBC seem to me like a bit of a glorified press office, if I'm honest, in terms of the fact that they're just getting a story out there without too much going into the yeah. detail. And I just think that's been a really interesting to sort it's of been thing an interesting to, to point thing. out. And it's, it's a little bit um, depressing in one way because it feels as though the BBC has kind of sacrificed the things that it, that, that it had that were really good um, in order to survive almost. And, and the, the fact that this story came out from the BBC, my immediate reaction was, okay, so the government's leaked it. Um, yeah, someone within the too. government has has um, has decided to let the BBC know, and that this is the best way to 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 get it out. It wasn't that I thought, oh, great, some wonderful um, investigative journalism by the BBC. It was that the government had leaked it. <laughs> now, it may be that that wasn't what happened, but the way the BBC has been operating makes us think 
this is the most the most likely thing to have to have happened. Whereas Sky has gone the other way, they've got they've got much much better. They're much more willing to be critical of the government, and I think this is part of this trust business. The the if if we're going to trust a process, we have to trust all the different elements of it. We have to trust the that the, the media is going to deal with it well, you know, and we have to trust that when the media is not going to kind of be complicit in the manipulation of the information, mm. and over brexit in particular and even the last election it, there's been a strong sense that the media was kind of um complicit with the people who were um trying to manipulate it hmm. and that is unhealthy for any democracy and it's particularly unhealthy in a situation where you need to develop trust yeah uh, i think you're absolutely right and especially with everyone humanity at large so vulnerable at the moment yeah. i think i think it's such an important time to to shed a light on that now yeah. we we spoke about the the kind of transparency of this process now obviously some of the blame has to be laid at the door of the government but should the press for you have done a better role in terms of asking questions finding stuff out reporting stuff accurately that kind of side of it, do you think the press has been complicit in the misinformation or do you think it's just a byproduct of the way that people consume news now? I, I think it's a, it's a kind of mixture of different things and, and some of the things you've mentioned are, are, are certainly part of it. The press could have done better. Um, and what I've seen, what I've observed um, completely anecdotally is, the, is some elements of the press kind of improving, learning through the process. Now, what I've noticed in my dealing dealings with um, various bits of the media, and I talk to people in the media quite a lot, is that the technology bits of the media are generally very good. So I talk about talk to people in the specialist press, and they're very good. I talk to the tech correspondents, particularly Sky News, but, but um, others as well, and they're very, very good. Whereas the political sides are much less good. And the problem we had with this app and the reporting of it and the investigation of it is that it, As was, it was the political journalists. Yeah, it was in the hand of the political journalists. And it was the political journalists who got to ask the questions at the, at the press briefings and so on. While the tech journalists were doing the really good stuff in the background, the political journalists were not even listening to their tech journalists' colleagues mm. they were it's like the political journalists are the important ones the tech journalists just a bunch of, of geeks and nerds um in in the back room now with sky someone in the editorial um section seemed to notice that this was going wrong and the the tech people got pushed more further to the front and the political journalists started to take the tech more seriously so we've had some really good tech questions from people like Sam Coates and Beth Rigby, for example, that, that we would not have, have got before and that we haven't had from Robert Peston and Laura Koonsberg. Now, no. I don't know whether they don't understand the tech or they don't talk to their tech experts, but whereas the, the, the Sky ones certainly seem to. Now, I mean, we should say, obviously, plurality of sources as a journalist. I'll say there are many other media by which you can consume news than the ones we've mentioned. But just I, th I think it makes sense to, to hyper-focus on them. Now, the way that journalism works, right, for, for anyone that's not sort of akin with the process is 
there's there's a kind of push and pull sort of acceptance that yeah you'll get fed exclusive stories as long as you don't throw me under the bus kind yeah. of type thing um and that, i think that's where journalists have a, a balance to strike because they've got to try and ensure that they report things fairly they report things in a way that's not sort of promoting the the vested interests of any one sort of organization or body right but put yourself in the shoes of a political journalist right most of my life has been a conservative government in power um, they've been in yep. power for a long time now. Labour seems to be in disarray and very much split into factions. So it looks like um, the Tories are here to stay, as it were, for the time being. So if you're a political journalist, what you want to do is you grease the wheel, right? So you make sure that you don't fall out with too many of the Conservatives uh, because that's who's going to be feeding you exclusive stories, maybe. And also it ensures that you actually get to go to the press briefing. You, you saw, I think it was the Times. Um, I actually saw some journalists banned from from the press briefing, and and like the the there's a, a balance to be struck there, right? And ensuring that yeah. you pour things accurately, but you you don't piss too many people off, right? For want of a better way yeah. of putting it. If you hand the power to the tech journalists, they have no. I mean, unless they actually blanket ban the organisation, which is a news story in itself, right? Um, yep. If you hand the power to the tech journalists, the experts on that side of it, then one, you're getting better questions asked. Two, you're getting people asking the questions who are not scared of pissing people off. So it ensures that they don't have that thing of, of kind of sort of hedging their bets a wee bit with yep. regards to what they do ask. And three, it ensures that the public are getting the best person to report that issue, reporting that issue. And I think that is a prime example of where journalism and and media reportage can, can at large can learn from what is happening here. And I yeah. think the fact that Sky have adapted and the other news organizations have not is it shows you where the progress, where the innovation is happening uh, for me. Yeah, in I terms think that's of, right. In, in terms of the news media. And and everyone's learning here. Uh, the pandemic's are a situation where everyone's learning, particularly us in the media. We're learning about how the public, what the public want to consume. And again, that's another balance journalists have to strike. Yeah, do you do the clickbait story about the dog or, you know, like, I mean, I've done, I've alluded to this before in the pod, I've done shifts in news organizations where I'm just sitting churning out content for people to read. What's the actual news value of it? Not all, sometimes yeah. very, very negligible um, when you're doing pictures of uh, Molly Me's new house, you know, um, and what she's done with it. But, that's the environment we live in. Clicks means advertising, means the, the news media stay in business. There's a balance to be struck, and I don't think the press has done very well, and I've got a feeling that you would agree, Paul. Yes, yeah, and I, and I, I, I would hope that, that some of the, um, the media has learned from it, but I'm not very optimistic because, um, frankly, they learned very little from what went wrong with Brexit. <laughs> Mm. Um, and they didn't. Un they still don't understand why. Uh, I mean, it, it's uh, it's hard to try to teach journalists their own job, but the misunderstanding and the the misapplication of impartiality and um, of due impartiality and due accuracy it remains a fundamental problem for our broadcast um, journalists. The, mm -hmm. the the false balance is done, and the 
the inability to call out, out, out what are actually lies remains a significant problem. But if, as you say, the techies, the tech journalists, can be used better when there's a tech issue, then I think we, we, we have a chance. Because I would like to think that Sky, at least, notice how well, how well their stuff is going down in the, the kind of the specialist sectors. You know, I think people mm-hmm. appreciate the, the way that things have been done. And I don't know whether that's reflected in, in ratings. No, no, but I, I think I think that there's other stakeholder value can be determined there. You know, I mean, yeah. if you've got, if if you are read by high influencers in in a, a sector of industry or technology or whatever it might be, if high sort of level influencers are reading it, that carries its own value. It's not always volume. Sure. It's it's the quality rather than the quantity of who's consuming, uh, yeah. and, and that's reflected. And and what what sort of begets that is the is the quality of what you do, you know. Uh, and we've obviously mentioned tech and this issue as one, but I think for this pandemic as a whole, I think you can look at all of the various issues of it. I mean, yeah. how often have they lent on the health correspondence rather than the political correspondence? Probably not enough. You know, yeah. and I think all of the disparate parts of this all-consuming coronavirus, COVID nineteen pandemic, there's a lesson to be learnt there. Yeah, that is. Go- and I would hope the media would. Yeah. So after some merry bashing of my profession for a wee while there, Paul, um, justified though I will I will say it is, as you well know, justification is one of the defences you can use um, when it comes to media law. Not that I think I defamed anyone, but there we are. Yes, I just want to end, I always like to end the podcast, as, as regular listeners will know, with what we can we, we can kind of put a positive spin on, especially when we deal with such heavier topics. I, th- I think it's good to look at what we can what we can be positive about. So... What positives do you think we can take from the government's decision to to change tack here? Well, any decision to change tack away from something which is not working should be seen as a positive. And the willingness to admit that you're wrong, that you were wrong, would also be a positive, if only they had been willing (laughs) to do that. Um, and And I think that I would have been much happier if they said, yeah, we were wrong. And we've now changed direction, which is effectively what the Germans said when they shifted um, from um, centralized to a decentralized system and towards the, 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 the GAPL solution. If they'd been honest enough to say that, that would have been much better. But the fact that they've changed at all and that we all know they've changed is, um, is, a, is, a, is a positive. I think, as, I, as we were just mentioning, I think the Improvement of the tech coverage by the media is definitely a positive. We have to keep that one, um, keep mm-hmm. on, keep that one going. We have to keep supporting the the media in positive ways when the media does things does things well. And I, mm-hmm. I, I do. I, I mean, I'm not a gr- big player on Twitter, but I do have a verified account. I do tweet praise to me to the media when the media does things well, and I, I think we should be kind of applauding the good stuff as well as criticizing the the yeah the I think that's stuff fair. when it when it when it when it happens um i think the if if we can convince people to understand that something failing 
is part of the process and is potentially good, then we will have learned something, we'd have done something very positive. Amanda Amanda would definitely wholeheartedly endorse what you're saying. We have to learn how to, that mistakes are not necessarily um, bad, that you you have to be able to make mistakes and to learn from them if you're going to get anywhere. And the thing that's annoyed me the most about this government is that it's continually saying, we're doing the right thing at the right time. If they had only said, we're trying to do the right thing at the right time, rather than we're doing it, I think we'd have all been much more sympathetic towards the, what is genuinely an incredibly difficult position that they've, they've had to deal with. Yeah. But, uh, if, we can, if we can push them towards doing that, then that would be another good thing to come, to come out of this. I don't think you're going to change the rhetorical style of the current Conservative administration at all. But I, I like that you're at least positive that that could happen. But I'm a bit like you were in a couple of other points. I, I'm very, very, very cynical about that. Um, just yeah. on the Germany thing that you mentioned, and this kind of goes against the ending on a positive, although I do still have one more question of that ilk, which I've already asked Amanda, and I'll ask you. Just on the Germany thing, though, if Germany changed tack, I mean, when, when did they make their decision to, to go... Uh, oh, I don't know the exact system. date, but it was. Um, it was a good number. Ago. Yeah, it was a good number of weeks ago, anyway, right? So, yeah. why did it take us as long to follow suit? Was it just the stage we were at in the process? So, I asked so, the question: Did we do, did we bail on this too early? Now, let's flip that. Let's see where the UK government too late to react. We don't know for sure because this falls back on this question that we've referred to a few times: Have they actually been backing? both directions from the start. Now, if they have, then I think they probably didn't abandon too soon. Mm-hmm. If they haven't, and they've actually put most of their eggs in the now abandoned basket and just oh, an egg or two in the other one, then I think they were too slow. And part of that being too slow is simply that that they haven't been listening to enough people or the right people. They've only been listening to the people that they trust. And this is a fundamental problem for government with, with tech, but also with other things. They go to the people that they trust rather than the people who necessarily are the, the experts. Mm. And they don't talk to people who they think will be um, go against the message. And you've got to talk to people who, are go- who will go against the message if you're going to succeed. This is satirised beautifully for anyone who's not watched it in um, the BBC comedy show The Thick of It. There's an yeah. episode in series one or two where they're, they're talking about experts and he's like, oh, well, no, no, just get an expert that says this, you know, which is, yeah. I, I, I've spoken to an expert, Malcolm. And yeah, they, basically it's just, it's just a, a skit where it kind of says that you can get an expert that says one thing or you can get an expert that says another thing. And whatever your government's message is, just speak to the expert that backs that message. And it's satirised beautifully in the thick of it, but it's a problem that that still remains the case, clearly. And it's and th- fine if you're just dealing with a political problem. And, and, and that's part of the problem we have is that they saw this as a political problem and they were more interested in popularity mm. than in actually dealing with the real the real problem and when you're faced with a genuine emergency politics is not enough 
you have to actually deal with it. And I, I have um, relatives who are serious scientists and they are dumbfounded by the we're following the science argument that this government has been using all the time because there is no the science. No. There are scientists with, all, with, with many differing opinions and with many different perspectives. And you have to be able to listen to enough of them even when they disagree with you. In fact, no, that, especially that, when they disagree with absolutely. you. Absolutely. I mean, the, the whole premise of science is that you don't go in with any agenda. You do experiments to find out what, at least extrapolate some sort of meaning from something and something that can be learned from something. Um, so, yeah, referring to this science as this sort of nebulous concept is, is a nonsense. And anyone who's been following the news media at all will know that that basically just seems to be a vehicle for whatever Dominic Cummings' agenda is. That seems to be yeah. the case. Yeah, no, I think I think some some really good points there. I'm just going to finish um, in terms of the questions with the the same one that asked Amanda's our, our final question, which was, in a year's time, where do you think we will be? How much further forward do you think we're going to be in terms of technology supporting the the fight against COVID? That's a really interesting and very very difficult question to to answer. I don't think we'll be as far forward as I would like us to be. I don't think, I mean, I, my, my suspicion and fear is that um, rather than this being a continuing major catastrophe, which focuses the minds, um, this will kind of rumble on at a lower level in a kind of way that is still killing people, but not enough people for the government to really be interested in it in, in, in the same degree. And as a consequence, they will try to um, kind of forget all this. This is one of the things they're expert at. When something goes wrong, they kind of pretend it never happened. Mm. And I suspect that that's going to be what we're not going to learn from, the, this, from this app problem, is that, you know, they're going to kind of try and pretend none of this ever happened. And part of that may be they reduce the significance of the use of tech in, in their plans for the future. So my real suspicion is... That would be a we are, complete error, surely. Yes, it would, be a, it would be a complete error, but I suspect that may be where we are. I hope it isn't. I hope we see what actually can be gained and find a way that actually works and that the app development continues. I suspect that will happen outside the UK. The question of how much we're willing to work with countries other than the UK is the big political question for me. Because if we are, then I think we could be significantly further ahead in a year's time. But then there's the political thing that the Tory party has to play there to what won at the, the election, which was a three-word slogan of get Brexit done. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I think... Uh, I think that sort of dichotomy of politics versus what, what's actually best to fight the pandemic in terms of, or at least the messaging around that, is, yeah. going, to be, is, is going to be a repeated theme and going to be something that, that we keep seeing. Um, Pubs are opening and, listen, colds sort of spike and coronavirus and any similar viruses spike in winter. We're in June now. Um, pubs are opening yep. back up. There's an economic imperative to get things moving that way. Yep. Worrying times still sure lie ahead. Is forgotten. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, I think what, what will be interesting is if there is, and I suspect there might be, a new spike in the winter. Um, and yeah, I think there's going to be a second spike in the winter. I yeah. would hope that the, the, the work on apps continues in, in, even though it's got less high profile, so that they're actually better prepared um, when the time comes in the winter and they have something that could actually be useful. Well, what I'll ask you on that is, do you think anything about the response to this pandemic at any point has been proactive? Everything to me has seemed reactive. So, again, like we're actually, do you know what we're like? We're like the two puppets on The Muppets, me and you, I think a wee bit, aren't yeah. we? Just a pair of cynics yeah. <laughs> together. There is a chance, there is a chance that, that, that we learn, um, but I'm not um, overly optimistic. Neither am I. But hey, listen, hope springs eternal. So they tell me. It does. Um, brilliant, Paul. Listen, I have really, really enjoyed the chat. I know you're a Wolves fan, uh, as long as you're happy for that to go on public records. So if that's I am the case... I'm extremely happy for that to go go public. So um, yeah. I, I wish you all the best in your bid to, to get back into Europe once again. I think things are looking quite good with, with, with that in mind. Adama Traore actually looks like he's rounded off his game. The most optimistic I've been about football um, pretty much in my lifetime, I would say. Mm. You must be one of the few people in the city of Norwich for whom that is the case at the moment. Um, And that's pain (laughs) that I feel acutely myself. Now, if people want to find you on Twitter for views on wolves, on politics, on tech and on legal matters, of course, privacy, all of that stuff, where can they find you, my friend? Yeah, uh, Twitter is the place to find me. It's Paul Bernal UK. Um, you can find me in other places, but but frankly, you're better off finding me on Twitter. And if you're not on Twitter, you can email me, email me at the, if you want. My email is public on the UEA website. But yeah, Twitter's the best place to get me. Yeah, get tweeting. That's the way to do it. Brilliant stuff. Paul, thank you very much. Thanks to Amanda for coming to join us once again. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and continuing to support this wee venture of mine. My Corona Podcast by Hodge and Hack can now be found on all of the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can find us on Twitter at My Corona Pod and on Facebook by searching for My Corona Podcast by Hodge the Hack. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Tell all your friends about it if you have enjoyed this episode. We do have an ever-expanding back catalogue, so go and check that out if this is your first taste of my corona podcast but the main message is tell your friends so that's it troops and troopettes i have been hodgy the hack we will be back at the start of next week with an episode which is all about the construction industry they need to get back to work and marrying that against workers safety but in the meantime as we always say stay safe and stay sane